Hello and welcome to another episode of Prove Me Wrong, Please. My name is Connor and today my guest is Corey Nathan, who is a born-again Christian, a former stockbroker, and an entrepreneur with a wealth of experience in various fields. Uh, he also hosts a podcast called Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, where he engages with folks of many different backgrounds in an honest and non-confrontational manner. So when I stumbled upon his name in a podcast newsletter I subscribed to, I obviously wanted to reach out to see if he was interested in talking. For those of you who are familiar with my podcast, my goal is very much aligned with Corey's in that I seek out difficult but invigorating conversations about contentious issues in politics with the hope of building a better understanding of the world and perhaps even building a bridge between the growing partisan divide that we see here in America. So although Corey and I ultimately share many opinions, I was excited to talk to him about how his faith informs his politics and how he approaches contentious issues with folks of opposing views so that I could perhaps get a better uh, idea in terms of how to conduct my own conversations. We talked for a while, uh, so I did have to break up our conversation into two episodes, so this is just part one. Um, Be sure to subscribe if you want to catch part two, which I'll probably post sometime next week. Um, As always, I encourage those listening who might disagree with anything uh, I say or just want to contribute to the conversation to email me at pmwp.pod at gmail.com. Otherwise, please enjoy our conversation about religion, politics, and friendly disagreement. And as always, I encourage you to prove me wrong, please. Enjoy. So this is a little bit different from what I typically do um, because I like to try to invite folks who I just generally disagree with on a particular topic and who they're t- generally passionate about that. And then I'll give them, you know, maybe a week to kind of compose their thoughts and come to the conversation equipped, but not necessarily ready for a debate. And with you, uh, I, you know, having listened to your previous episodes, I think, like I said in the email, there's a lot that we agree on and probably not too much that we disagree on. I mean, I guess we'll find out, but um, in terms of just like the structure of this, I'm just going to kind of leave it more so open-ended um, and just kind of see where it goes as, as long as that kind of works with you. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I'm good. Um, see where it goes. Yeah. Yeah. I loved your comment. I listened to the episode that you sent me and I loved your comment about seeking out dialogue and not debate um, and essentially just putting a face to the name of folks, which I think is essentially just an antidote to Twitter in which like people with complete anonymity can just turn really nasty. I mean, myself included. Um, and that's very similar uh, reasoning behind, you know, this podcast that I created. And it's why I love yours in which you very similarly, you know, invite folks that have opposing views to have a conversation and not uh, a debate that's hopefully a little bit more constructive. Um, and there are, there are plenty of episodes on yours that I still definitely want to listen to. I mean, you have got very impressive guests like Joe Walsh and Scaramucci, Bill Crystal. Uh, so you're clearly hitting some, some heavy hitters, but yeah, if you wouldn't mind just start off by just telling me a little bit about yourself and specifically your inspiration for that project. Yeah, sure. Thank, thanks for, first of all, thanks for having me on. I, it's yeah cool like it's been cool listening to your program and and getting to know you and now we actually get to talk to each other so that's that's it's a real treat to to get to meet you this way 
But yeah, the inspiration for talk politics and religion without killing each other is just that. It's just that, you know, part of my own life story and, and formative years have lent itself to wanting to have these sorts of conversations, but specifically conversations in a different way. So much of the incentive structure, whether it's subtle, subtle algorithms that we're falling prey to online or uh, the, the political system, what it's become, it, it tends to bring people into conversations already with their dukes up, whether it's about politics, about religion, or about any number of other important topics. And I don't think that's how we human well, <laughs> you know, like I don't, we need to people better and allow for each other's humanity. So my story is I, I grew up in a very observant Jewish household. Uh, my family, my dad is actually, um, many would consider him Orthodox. We went to an Orthodox synagogue. Uh, growing up, we kept kosher and, and observed all the holidays. In fact, just this last Saturday, we still did a, a Seder, what, like the um, traditional Passover meal, mm -hmm. and invited some friends over. It was great. Uh, but in my late 20s, I became a Christian. And not just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to church on Christmas. But I, I became like a Bible-thumping, born-again, evangelical Christian, because I just believed theologically in some of the things that I was learning about. That's a whole other story about how that all came about. But was, was there like, I mean, not to delve too deep into that, was there a specific instance or epiphany or something that kind of inspired that transition? I would say that it was, it was, I, I was fertile ground for the type of study I ended up entering into. And it was a season of not just study, but really grappling with big questions. The fertile ground was that even as a kid, as soon as I could remember thinking, I remember having big questions, big questions about the origin of the universe, big questions about our place in the universe, big questions about what the hell is wrong with this place, <laughs> you know, and what the hell is wrong with us, um, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I continued wrestling with those questions well into my 20s and still wrestle with them, frankly. But there was a moment in time when I came across some folks who uh, made a better case for the, the Christian theological set of answers. And I started reading voraciously. It was the summer, the spring and summer of 2000. And um, some of the stuff was, you know, it was like fast food into intellectualism and I, I didn't necessarily buy it, but even, even the lesser stuff, I, I found it compelling that someone can make an empirical case for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So at least that opens me up to reading other more erudite material. Uh, C.S. Lewis is very accessible, but he's also very robust intellectually and, and from a literary standpoint. And Lewis opens me up to other thinkers like G.K. Chesterton, or um, right after Lewis's time, a guy named Malcolm Mugridge, uh, prominent in um, British uh, media circles, but a great thinker, just so many other philosophers, thinkers, theologians, and ultimately led me to, I had a resistance to even reading the New Testament, let alone stepping inside of a church, but reading all of this material got me to a point where I was like, I should probably read their sacred text. You know, I know I, I grew up going to Hebrew school, Hebrew high school and all that stuff. Uh, bar mitzvah and even like as a little kid I went to JCC for nursery school so I knew the Hebrew Bible I knew Torah prophets histories stuff like that I never read the New Testament so when I read the New Testament 
one of the things that really caught my attention was how Jewish it was, how Jewish it is. You know, I mean, sorry, the first book, coincidentally, I read or the first letter I read was uh, James. And it starts out to the 12 tribes, like basically talking to the 12 tribes of Israel, which is me. And then I started at the beginning of the collection, which is uh, Matthew, the Matthew's gospel. And literally, it was just like five pages in, which is about, I don't know, a half hour of reading for the average reader. Five chapters in, I get to what I recognize as a Devar Torah which is um, in Judaism, you, you read from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, um, three days a week. And then the rabbi, whoever's leading the service, le leading the minion, gives a defar Torah, an explanation of what you were just reading. So this G I was still looking at it from more of a literary philosophical standpoint, because I was not open at that point. I was curious, but not necessarily open to the possibility of becoming a Christian. But then, so when I say the Jesus character, the Jesus character in chapter five of, of Matthew's gospel gives the most brilliant of our Torah I'd ever read. I just recognized it as such. And I just kept reading. I was just really pulled in. And then shortly after that, I, I just, I just didn't stop reading. I got to revelation 22 and then I was like, wow, it, it hit me on a very palpable level, not just like an intellectual level, but a spiritual level, just things aligned for me. Um, and then, yeah, I, I clumsily prayed the prayer and gave my life to Jesus or whatever you want to say. But yeah, I was, so, it was Jesus that convinced me. <laughs> got it. Well, so to me, I mean, it sounds like you're um, just general in inherent curiosity, I think uh, kind of led you down that path. And, and that's something that I just found interesting with you in general, because I think we share uh, a curiosity just about the world, specifically about politics and I'm, I'm curious, like in, in your experience, like how in talking with a bunch of different people, especially on your podcast, but also about different religions and your own transformation, like how have you found, um, have you found yourself able to inspire curiosity in others and how are you able to achieve that? That's an interesting way to put it. Inspire curiosity in others. Wow. Or, or is it more kind of an inherent quality? I have it, and I think my enthusiasm for curiosity, maybe that's the best way to describe it. Oftentimes it comes across, it probably comes across like, I, I think I used, I might've used the word wrestling or grappling with before. Oftentimes that's what it is. I'm really tormented even by it in, in its worst forms or darkest forms. Um, but I don't know if I inspire curiosity in others. If I made that a focus, you just get really, really got me thinking. I, I just wonder if I made that a focus, if I can inspire curiosity in others, because that's really, that really allows us to embark on a journey together, mm -hmm. you know, like, so that's never been a conscious goal, but I, I think maybe if I did make that a focus, it would make it more fun as opposed to what I have been at odds with is the American evangelical methodology, American evangelical approach, which to me looks a hell of a lot more like, I don't know, colonialism. It looks a lot like, you know, the conquerors coming and saying, oh, you, you know, cannibals and uh, heathens, here we are with all of the answers and we know everything. And to the degree that you agree with us, you may live, <laughs> you know, like almost literally that's the God, that's their version of the gospel. And I'm very much at odds with that as opposed to saying, Hey, 
there are these set of answers that those answers made sense, but opened up a whole bunch of new questions. I'd love to explore those questions with you. And oh, by the way, because of the first set of answers, you know, what does that mean? If I believe what this teacher Jesus is saying, what does that mean in my life? How do I live? Not just for myself, but for my family, for around my neighbors, in my community. What does that look like? And if that appeals to you and you think that's doing good in this world, join us, you know, join me. And along the way, while we're feeding the homeless and hungry and taking care of widows and orphans and doing that thing, you know, it'll be fun while we're building houses for, you know, people that maybe we could talk about these existential questions and figure that stuff out too, or maybe just come up with better questions. I don't know. Like, yeah, that seems, that seems more in line with, with like, I think we have a sense, intuitive sense of what's right, what's wrong that aligns with intuitively what I think is what's right. Mm -hmm. So this, it's a great, great question. I mean, this, this is something that I think, <clears throat> I think about often. I mean, I'm often kind of come back to like the Dunning Kruger effects, which essentially just say, it's like the more, you know, the less confident you are in your knowledge, essentially of the world or any particular issue. And so I find that a lot of the people that I disagree with most when it comes to politics are those who, instead of trying to, you know, learn more about a particular issue that they're passionate about or kind of explore their own uh, curiosity, they instead kind of stick their head in the sand and are just very firm in their belief. And so I'm constantly trying to think about how to engage those folks in a constructive manner, um, which is something that I think you obviously do very well um, on your on your podcast. Um, would you say, or what would you say is the goal of your conversations? Is it to, because for me, I, if I'm being totally honest, it's essentially to shift people's thinking um, back towards, I don't know, uh, rationality, I'd say, but also to kind of shift my own in a way that's better understanding. But I'm curious, like, what, what is your goal? Well, their, their most pressing goal, I think, is so much of this space has been dominated by screamers and extremists mm -hmm. that whether we go to a family function and crazy uncle Joe is just dominating the entire conversation. Nobody can get a word in edgewise. And typically that crazy uncle Joe or cousin, whoever is kind of what you just described is the one who is most certain about everything under the sun, whether we're talking about golf, Taekwondo, politics or religion, crazy uncle Joe or crazy cousin Sheila always has the damn answers. You know, I'm very suspicious that the more certain people, are, certain individuals are about a wider array of things, the more, the less interested I am in them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so the most immediate goal is to take some space back. You know, the, the, so much of the public square has been dominated by folks just like that, that have an incentive, you know, whether it's prominent media figures like uh, Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity, or, or uh, politicians like MTG and uh, Lauren Boebert, their, their incentive is to be the most extreme in order to get the clicks, in order to get the views, that that's not healthy for us individually as human beings or as a culture. So listen, I am not gonna make a dent, let alone a, a, you know, a hair's breadth of, a, of an influence on Tucker Carlson's audience, but, or maybe I, I, maybe we will, you know, maybe you will. But I think it, even if 
even if one person's tuning in because they're really compelled by someone like Pete Weiner or, or Lisa Sharon Harper or you know Matt Lewis or any number of the folks that have come on and, and shared some time with us, even if one person spends an hour listening to that versus listening to the Will Cow majority, and I'm picking on right-wingers right now. I, there, there are plenty of folks oh, who are extreme. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. There are plenty of other folks who I, so, okay. I'm just going to take a little bit of a offshoot yeah. here. Yeah. Tangents are welcome. Explain why. So I, you know, I am a, a Bible believing Christian. And one of the reasons that my, a lot of my critique is for folks who tend to be very, they refer to themselves as extreme, right? But I, I just don't even think that's a great way to describe it is because in the Bible, a lot of when, when Jesus had criticism, he was criticizing for those he identified with most closely. The, the, these robust conversations and debates he had with Pharisees. Now, that's separate from Sadducees and, and priests and stuff like that. But he had these really robust, passionate debates with Pharisees. And I think he identified most closely with them because they were passionate about the scriptures. They were passionate about creation. They were passionate about how to redeem creation. You know, if you look in the Hebrew scripture, a Hebrew Bible, the prophets often, it wasn't like they were going and, and saying, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah weren't like, the other side is this, this, and this. And let me tell you what, you know, all these Babylonians and Persians are thinking. That's not what their game was. Their, their agenda was to talk to the other people of Israel, to talk to the people of God among their own people, right? So what bothers me the most, more so than someone who's from a different place and a different you know, just completely different mindset is when people are hijacking the language of God, hijacking the symbols of Christianity. One of the worst moments in the last decade for me culturally was when Donald freaking Trump cle violently cleared a public square in front of the White House oh, yeah. to cross a street, hold up a Bible like a caveman holding a club in front of a, a church that he never attended, never bothered going into to, to do some prayer time with. And a lot of my friends from church were like, well, thank goodness somebody's holding up the Bible. I'm like, no, no, no. This is idolatry. This is the worst form of idolatry because we're all, you, well, not me, but I, I, I hesitate I, because I, I feel like I'm wagging my finger at my friends from church, but that's where my vitriol comes in the most passionately. It's like, what are we doing, guys? This is us. We, we all read the same Bible. We know what the fruit of the spirit is. What are we all doing? So anyway, Sorry, I went on a big old rabbit trail there. No, that's, I mean, me excited. Yeah, no, I, so I am, I'd probably consider myself atheist. Um, I did have a, a friend on who was uh, a pastor in Alabama and now actually works for the White House in their museum, I believe. Um, but the, the topic of that episode was op uh, religion is an obstacle to progress. And I, I argued essentially that for some of the biggest issues that we face, like climate change, for example, a large part of the community that is opposed to any kind of reform are those who cite religious texts as reasoning for why climate change can't exist. But it, well, don't get me started on that. Yeah, yeah. And it, it sounds it sounds like, you know, obviously you're very passionate against that, you know, community as well. Do you feel that those people who represent let's call it the far evangelical right are less influential than they appear just because they get more kind of airtime or are we actually seeing um, their influence kind of manifest today? I mean, if we're looking at Roe v. Wade, that's a community that was 
essentially mobilized in the seventies to, for a very political reason. And I, in, in one of your previous episodes, you kind of cited, you know, the, the more not moderate, but I guess liberal religious thinkers uh, in history, like MLK, for example, and how over the long term they have a much more kind of sustaining and uh, impact as opposed to what we're all kind of focusing our attention on right now. Like, how do you see the current state of religion, especially in the U.S., in terms of uh, a guiding force for good versus bad, politically speaking? I know that's yeah. kind of a loaded, a loaded question. A lot of it is. It is. Yeah. And I would love to be able to sit here and say, no, that's the minority and they just get more airtime. But unfortunately, it, it's not the minority because I think a lot of folks, Tim Keller talks about this, a pastor who's based in New York, uh, has a big, you know, big following and has written a lot of books and very influential in the Christian community, has said that he gets his folks at church for about an hour or two a week, maybe they come to a Wednesday evening Bible study. But a lot of his parishioners are spending 10, 15, 20 hours a week on Fox News and OANN. He, can't, he just can't compete with that. Mm -hmm. You know, so I see it here in, in uh, one of the big churches in, in our hometown. And I'm still friendly with the main pastor there. But, you know, the he has to be a lot, uh, Dave, the, the main pastor there, has to be a lot more careful about the Christian nationalists there because they're louder, they're more extreme, they're more passionate in their views. You know, I, I do think realistically that there are a few different buckets in a church like that, even a more fundamentalist church like that. And that particular church I'm referring to, it's probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest in Santa Clarita Valley where I live. And they're fundamentalist. They're kind of what you were alluding to before because they're a young earth creationist, meaning like they believe that like uh, that, uh, the earth began about 6,000 and something years ago. Yeah. And that 24 literal, literal um, days, six literal 24 hour days that the, you know, earth was created. Um, <laughs> I have difference of opinion on that, sure, but, um, yeah. but, uh, and a biblically sound one, by the way, but that's another conversation. <laughs> but, you know, I think the buckets in that church are the loudest voices. Like a lot of these conversations are the Christian nationalists. Mm -hmm. who are Trump is like, you know, they, they pick some character from the Bible. He's our this or that um, and defending him, his character, because we need someone fighting for us. Those are the loudest voices. A lot of the voices are watching Fox and watching Hannity and are persuaded by the likes of a lot of the, the pundits on Fox and OANN, but they're not as passionate, not as engaged. Uh, if anything, they're maybe a little bit exhausted and just want the hubbub to kind of de-escalate. Um, and then there's folks, and I think it's a silenced, maybe not majority of that crowd that are thinking, wait, this guy is the ag Trump and Trumpism, not just Trump himself, but Trumpism is the exact opposite of Christian virtues. Mm -hmm. But they don't have the space to be able to question I, I mean, I've experienced it myself in numerous settings, even before Trump came on the scene, where I was in a Bible study, we were reading Acts, it was early in Acts, and it was this incident where the early church was the very illustration of communism, of socialism, I should say. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm like, hey, wait a second, what, what is this? This is like socialism. This is a very picture of socialism, you know? And, and I, wasn't, I wasn't making a case that we should be socialistic in all of our, you know, uh, in our lives and, and how we relate to each other. I was just be, being like, hey, hey, this is a church. Not only that, there's an incident afterwards where there was a husband and wife uh, in the early church who sold their, all of their belongings, sold their house, and they, uh, the husband came first to the church gathering and he donated a whole bunch of money from the proceeds of, of their sales uh, to the, you know, the church family. But he held back a little bit for, you know, his, him and his wife. And I forget, it was um, Peter, Peter, who was leading the service uh, as it's described to Acts. And, and uh, as, as the, the story describes it, Peter, I think by the Holy Spirit, knows that the guy held back some money. And he's like, because of that, you're going to die right now. And the guy, bam, dies. So I was just making this point in this Bible study, like, and then his wife came and, and she died on the spot because they weren't socialist enough. <laughs> you know, like they were three quarters of the way in, but not socialist enough. I was just kind of making a joke about it. Uh -huh. Literally, we were on a retreat when we were studying this. Literally the next morning, we were supposed to be there for another uh, night or two. The next morning, the guys came to me. They're like, you're going to have to leave. <laughs> Jeez. You know, so this is even before Trump came on the scene. So, you know, there've also been, my kids went to a Christian school. There were moments when I, I got up in a, there were public gatherings of, of our church, our um, school community, Christian school community. And man, I'll tell you what, like just even asking questions, not trying to make a case for political figures, like God forbid someone shouldn't hate Barack Obama enough. If you didn't display enough hatred, you were just ostracized by so much of the community. My, and, you know, I, I and I was I was harassed. I, I was threatened with violence out in the parking lot. <laughs> uh, you know, just it, it's it's really it, it really illustrates the fact that it, it's another form of idolatry is what it is. Mm -hmm. It's placing uh, priorities and values like who we vote for or certain issues that have a very hazy case in the Bible, you know, that we're placing that above virtues that are crystal clear in the Bible. Like what is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. Now, if you take that, Donald John Trump is the exact opposite of all that. If you take yeah. the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, Donald Trump is the exact opposite of all that. So all that to say, like we, I'd love to sit here and say that, no, it's just, they're taking extreme examples and highlighting the extreme examples. Unfortunately, it's a cancer that has metastasized. And, and if I have, if I have a mission, my mission is to, is to have these conversations. If I'm in a Bible study, I will, I'm learning from my mistakes. I'm trying to have it. Um, the Bible talks about making a ready, ready defense for the hope that's within you, but with gentleness and respect. And that's a, even as an atheist, you can probably, you could probably align with having conversations with more winsomeness, gentleness, mm -hmm. respect. So when I'm among my brothers and sisters in a church, I, I'm going to try to embody that and learn from my mistakes. But it's imperative that we, we repent from this form of idolatry, not to get mm -hmm. all preachy on you, but like, no, I mean, yeah, no, I, I, I love it. I, um, I studied a little bit of philosophy in college and a little religion, but I mean, like I said, atheist, I grew up Presbyterian. So I've always just been fascinated with religion in general, because I think uh, it sort of reflects what I consider essentially like an epidemic of ignorance in the sense that there are people 
like yourself who are very well informed about uh, religious texts in the Bible, and you kind of take a more holistic approach, like you, from what I understand, it seems as if like you um, don't pick and choose certain verses to kind of reflect your own values, as opposed to you look at all the texts of the Bible and then form your own conclusions. In in a similar way, I see a lot of people. For example, like with regards to climate change, like picking and choosing, you know, the one or two percent of studies that confirm or in their opinion, uh, confirm that climate change is a liberal hoax and then use that to form their opinion as opposed to looking at the larger scope of scientific evidence that argues the opposite. Um, so I, I, I guess I, I'm curious, like, do you see this growing threat of ignorance um, a problem and or do you even see it at all in the, in the same way that I essentially do I do think I don't know if ignorance is exactly the right way to describe a symptom of what ails us it, it is a symptom don't get me wrong I just don't know if ignorance is unique to our time and our place I think what ails our culture at this time and place there are more pre more pressing prevalent symptoms than just ignorance. I think that, like, listen, if somebody just doesn't know, I don't begrudge them for it. But if you lay over the top of that, don't the not knowing ignorance, a an arrogance, and a, a pretending that, that they do know, and then layer on top of that a sense of aversion or malice that that's that probably describes more closely what ails a lot of the folks that i go to church with a lot mm -hmm. of the folks in our community a lot of how listen you know I, I i have conversations with folks that you might describe as woke who are orthodox woke and i think some of that ails and i have good friends because i've been in the entertainment industry the media industry for 20 something years so it ails a lot of my friends in the entertainment industry too. I have, it's it's amazing how some of those conversations mirror each other. And I'm yeah. not, it, like, I don't subscribe to the left right thing, this side, the other side thing. I think that there's, there's this illiberalism that ails folks that have, that think they're on the opposite sides of the fence, but they're just mirror images of each other and would probably find common cause mm -hmm. um, if, if they, uh, if they peeled back the malice, peeled back the uh, what would what did that be called? Um, cognitive dissonance, you know, uh, because that that a lot of it is an ignorance. It's cognitive. It, they're willingly choosing to say no, no, no. I don't want to believe that. Those are facts that don't align with what you were describing before. My a priori disposition, my a priori preferences, mm -hmm. right? So a willingness to enter into a conversation or enter into an endeavor that risks the possibility of shaking the foundation of your beliefs. If your beliefs are worthy, worthy of anything, if your beliefs are worthwhile, you'll come out with just richer soil and deeper roots in those beliefs. But if your beliefs are, can I curse on this? Yeah. Yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> if, your, if your beliefs are bullshit, then deal with it. You know, uh -huh. It's like one of my favorite contemporary theologians and scholars, this guy uh, named N.T. Wright, Tom Wright. And he's a historian vocationally. I think he's with Oxford. I might be wrong. He might be with Cambridge. But uh, either way, he's with really fancy school in England. 
Um, and he's also an Anglican, uh, he's now an Anglican bishop. Tom Wright entered, he's, he's so, he's contributed so much to uh, academia. Uh, he studied first century Israel as a historian. And he was already an Orthodox Christian at that point when, when he became a, a, a historian, as, as he was preparing to become this world-renowned historian. So he did this project where he was looking at the people of Israel and then the person of Jesus. And then the actual resurrection was a whole volume of his more academic work. And then he did two whole volumes just on Paul and Paul's writings. He entered into that project, risking the possibility that if he did his work really well as a historian, it would shake the very foundation of his theological beliefs. Now, he's he's come out the other side of this, he's still doing work, but he's come out the other side five volumes in over the course of 25, 30 years with a much richer, more nuanced understanding theologically than when he entered into it. And there are some things that maybe he believed before the tittles of it that he believed before that are different now. But I buy, I buy that dude's interpretation of Paul's letters much more so than in my value, there's a guy named John MacArthur than Johnny Mack's interpretation of, of anything that's in the Bible. It's much, there's a much more fundamentalist trend that I think has, it, it's, it exacerbates this other cultural social cancer that's ailing us. You know, the, the, not to go on too long about this one point, but um, just to illustrate, uh, I was having a conversation with somebody the other day about, it. Johnny Mack is probably best known for his, interp he was, he's a guy that a lot of people in my valley are like literalist about young earth creation. 6,000 years ago or whatever it was, seven days, literally 24 hours. And I saw somebody, uh, the master's college or master's university is, is the, um, the school here. And they have other churches uh, in, in this area. And uh, I just said, listen, I'm Jewish. So I know my people. And let's just, let's just pretend, you know, or, or let, let me just submit the possibility that there were a million or maybe 2 million people at the foot of Mount Sinai when God's voice itself like thundered from the mountain and said those first few, you know, verses of Genesis one and Genesis two. And, and the word day comes out of God's very, you know, presence. I guarantee you that not a single person of that million or 2 million people at the foot of Mount Sinai said to themselves, Hmm, I wonder if he means a literal day, <laughs> you know, like what are yeah. we doing here, guys? Can we read it contextually? Who, who were the human authors of this work? Who were they writing to? What was the time? What was going on at that time? Same thing. Fast forward to Paul's letters. Was he writing to say, no, uh, a woman should never be in a position of leadership ever in any circumstance, or was he writing to a particular church at a particular time that was struggling with a particular issue and he had to deal with these issues head on, you know, and, and to take, to take kind of what you were saying, whether it's in philosophy uh, or, or anything or the Bible or anything else to take half of a verse, you know, from, from one book of the, from one chapter of one book of the Bible and to make it like, you know, a, a universal must, a universal imperative it's just a really dumb way of reading anything, let alone the Bible. Yeah, I I think it's also, I, and you mentioned, I'm sorry, I forgot the, the name of the guy who essentially his research kind of expanded the understanding of. N.T. Wright. His, yeah, and I think that's a quality that is very much desired in every community, not just the religious community, but especially when it comes to politics, just having the humility to be proven wrong and then adopt or adapt your 
understanding of you know the world, religion, politics, or whatever accordingly based on, I suppose, the evidence. Um, and and I I just fear that a lot of people with more religious backgrounds are hardwired to reject evidence. Again, I I I know I'm kind of painting with a broad brush for sure. No, no, it's an important point because knowing the truth is a really important thing. And if what I believe is untrue, I want to know, <laughs> yeah. you know, if, especially if I'm building my life around it, if I'm deriving virtues and trying to embody virtues around what I believe to be true, if I believe to be true is not true, I want to know so I can mm. change my ways, you know? So it's an important point that you're making. It's, it's not painting with a broad brush because I think that ails us all, including me, mm -hmm. you know, so we, we often have to check ourselves in order to, again, to get back to a phrase in order to people better, you know? Yeah. It, it's, you know, it's, it's something that I um, have thought a lot about, obviously, like with this podcast is like, I, I want to know like my blind spots, um, you know, shifting back just towards like politics. And so I go out of my way to try to read news that I don't necessarily agree with from certain sources like Fox news, um, and for the right sources. Um, and I, I try listening to conversations from people who I generally despise, but at least want to give the time of day to just so I can have a more, uh, nuanced understanding of their opinion. But I, I find it difficult to kind of compel myself to explore some of those conversations when I already have so much um, evidence or, or I guess, uh, convincing me that a lot of their arguments are just bullshit. And one, one that comes to mind is I had a YouTube video tab open on my computer for like two weeks, a conversation between Bill Maher, who I, uh, like, and listen to a lot of his arguments, um, not necessarily support all of them. Um, and Ben Shapiro, who I just abhor for a variety <laughs> of reasons, but I, you know, their conversation was one that like, I, I knew that I needed to listen to, but I just could not get myself to click on it. I ultimately did and listened to it and, and thought it was great. But how do you convince someone, even like myself, who actively tries to go out of their way to hear opposing arguments, uh, to actually listen and participate and engage in those arguments when it's just so clearly difficult. I mean, as you mentioned, cognitive dissonance, like there is psychology kind of fighting against us. Like we don't want to hear arguments and conversations that we disagree with or kind of shake the foundation of our understanding. Yeah, that's a great question. And listen, I come from a place of having made every mistake in the book. And then we're writing chapter two of that book, <laughs> you know, like I've made so many mistakes and, and I am a student of what's called apologetics, the, the, uh, a phrase I was referring to before making a ready defense for the faith that's within you, the hope that's within you, uh, but with gentleness and respect. So I am a student of apologetics of how to do that, but I'm a student of it because I'm so bad at it. But I'll tell you one conclusion that I've arrived at. And, and I, I have arrived at several and I try to embody what I've learned. But the one conclusion is, I don't think I can convince anybody of anything, at least not in one conversation. You know, and, and the mistake I, I made in the past was that I thought that if I had the perfect conversation, approached it with the perfect strategy and deployed the perfect set of tactics that within one conversation, whoever that person is, I could convince them to make a 180 degree turnaround. I just think that's a really bad way of going about these things. Number one, 
the first part of that mistake was I was going about it in a transactional versus a relational way. And, and I think relationships are much more important whether you agree with me about the existence of God or not. Having a friend like you, where we have philosophical theological differences or differences about the way we see the universe, whether it's open universe or closed universe, I think that enriches my life to have somebody with a very different perspective. I can learn more from you than somebody who sits there and says, yeah, yeah, amen, uh-huh. I don't learn anything from that. I'm just, you know, like, what are we doing? So to approach things less from a transactional perspective, more from a relational. If I have a goal, it's not to convince you to change your mind. My goal is to take another step up the ladder that is our relationship, you know? So the other thing is, if there is a changing of the mind, it's, it's much more gradual. It is that I can't convince you to make a 180 degree turn, but I might be able to make you um, consider the possibility of a one degree turn. But here's the thing, the kicker is, I have to be open to the possibility that I'll make a one degree turn, that we're, we're like coming this way, you know? Yeah. And I think that too many of these conversations don't, don't have that openness, don't have that just submission to the truth that we're both human beings, that we're both imperfect, that neither of us have arrived at the whole set of answers, you know? So having a conversation as kind of what you were referring to before, without going into it as a contest, without coming into it with our dukes up and ready to debate and win the debate, like who's that for? That's yeah. just, it's, That's, a, it's a rhetorical version of whacking off. Like, what are yeah. you doing? Like, you're not getting anything done. You know, sorry to be kind of. Blind, no, but. no, that's all. I, that's why I really like even just the title of your podcast, uh, talking politics and religion without killing each other, because I think one of my faults is even just the title alone of mine seems a bit aggressive and confrontational. And so when I've struggled to get some more far right Trump supporting friends and family to come or just random strangers who I've tried to engage uh, online to come on the podcast. Like I don't necessarily blame them because if they just look at the title that they think that I'm just trying to, you know, name and shame them or just, you know, have a really heated debate where there's a, a right and wrong answer, a winner or loser, whatever. Um, but I, I guess at the same time, like, do you, um, I guess like shifting focus, do you ever think that there are some people just not worth engaging and having those conversations with um because i believe in the previous uh, podcast episode that I, that I listened to you said something along the lines of like some people just like don't don't have a soul and they're all essentially irredeemable <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth and feel free to correct me so, but like are there some people that are not worth engaging with on particular issues yeah there are uh peter wainer actually had a much more articulate uh, and kind way of describing it. He said that there are some folks who are just beyond being able to reach. They're, they're not reachable anymore. I, I might put it differently. Like I, I think of characters like Donald Trump and, and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I can make an empirical case that Donald John Trump has no soul and thus is not human. So I will not say that man, I'll say that individual, that so, creature. So you don't, you don't even look at like the tiny bit of like, okay, maybe he's just this, you know, you know, essentially fascist weirdo because he's just so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? 
uh, oh man. narcissistic. No, not narcissistic. S- just sick. Oh man. I can't believe I'm blanking on the word. I'll think of it, but yeah, That's sorry. Right. Go ahead. Uh, okay. So if I'm really being <laughs> semi-serious about this, uh-huh. I think that that creature could have been born with a soul, but has lived a life that did everything it could to kill that soul and thus is not a human creature anymore. Mm-hmm. So here's what I mean. So I would start this way. I would start by thinking about what is uniquely human? What are qualities that are uniquely human? Uh, and two that come to mind immediately, this is where if I were to do a dissertation, I would start here and see, okay, maybe I'm wrong about this. I'm not thinking about it right. But two qualities or two instances. One is, have you ever seen Donald Trump in a room where music is playing? I, I No, I mean... <laughs> So, uh, so in his, well, in his first that, campaign, unless you count like on stage him dancing to YMCA, but no. So uh, I remember one where Amarosa on the first campaign took him to a church, and there was music playing, and I'm like, this, this dude doesn't recognize like music just does not penetrate anything. There's nothing to penetrate there, mm-hmm. right? Like it didn't register. I was like, wow, that like, and that's a uniquely human quality. Like we hear music, even those who don't have any rhythm or can't carry a tune, we still respond to music in some way. Mm-hmm. This creature could not respond to music. This is the other more um, significant one, I think. I- I'm kind of joking with both of them, but I've never, s- there's been so much recorded of him speaking and you know, we see like, it's not a mystery. Well, we don't know what's in his soul. We don't know what's in his heart. Yeah, we do. It, you know, we see so much of his words, so much of his actions, so much of his character. It's all recorded. It's all out there for us to see. So have you ever seen him laugh like a human being? Have you ever seen him laugh in any situation other than a laugh of cruelty, a laugh at someone else's expense? So <laughs> no, it's it's funny you bring that up. I, I recently rewatched, or I shouldn't say recently, probably within the last five years, rewatched the Comedy Central roast of Donald Trump. And oh. he you're right, he doesn't laugh once. He sits there like grinning like an idiot. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so you're yeah. right. I mean, so I'm I'm kind of making drawing out this joke, but I so to answer your question more directly, I, there are some folks that are energy is in fact better used by fighting against them, unfortunately. But the way that we fight against them, it's a different, our modes of engagement are different than those who stormed the Capitol. So Mm -hmm. let's take that as a more real life, real world example. I honestly think that there are folks who showed up to the Stop the Steal rally that day on January 6th that I could have a productive conversation with. And again, not that I would convince them in one conversation to be like, oh, the election was fine. You know, like I'm not going to convince them, but I could yeah. convince them that there are folks who don't believe that the election was stolen, who maybe share some of the same values, maybe share the, the value of, if nothing else, we want a democracy to work. We want a free and fair election to take place. You know, and, and I could buy the possibility if somebody's only been watching a certain news channel and, and getting a certain Twitter feed that they genuinely believe that there were so many shenanigans in the last election. Now, where do I draw the line? Uh, I don't know exactly where it is, but somewhere between a person who has just gotten bad information and genuinely believes it and wants to participate in in taken back their country for what they deem as a good cause. There's a line between that person and the person who's taken a shit in the middle of the Capitol. Like mm-hmm. 
You know what I mean? Like, I don't know exactly where that line is, but it's in between there somewhere. I, yeah. Like that's a person who needs to be, you know, who needs to be put on trial and convicted and, and held to account for, for exactly what they participated in, which is an attempt to overthrow our, our democracy. Yeah. So I, I don't know where the line is, but it's somewhere between there. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I struggle with finding that line myself because I, I don't want to necessarily like give a platform to certain folks whose views I just think are abhorrent or um, just not founded in reality. But at the same time, like I, I, you know, like you said, still want to try to engage them on a human level so that we can have some kind of constructive conversation. But I, I think Malcolm Gladwell uh, once said that essentially humanizing someone detracts from your ability to actually objectively critique them. Um, and so I, I'm al always trying to think about, like, is it even worth trying to humanize someone when their personality shouldn't really matter? And in the same sense that, like, you know, a Washington, D.C. reporter shouldn't be best friends with the people that they're covering. What do yeah, you yeah, that that makes sense. It, you have to pick your spots depending on what your job is in a given situation. Like if I'm an attorney, just as an exercise, I, two of my best friends are attorneys. So just as an exercise, it's always cool for one to take a side, whatever their personal beliefs are, and the other one to take another side and to see them tease that out. If they can make a case for, you know, uh, uh, literally cases, you know, make, mm -hmm. make a case on one side of a, an individual um, lawsuit or, or another. But let, let me give you let me give you a real world example that that is close to home. So mm -hmm. I happen to believe in the uh, efficacy of the vaccines. I, you know, I'm fully vaxxed and boosted mm -hmm. and <clears throat> I have three kids. Uh, they're the 21 year old, 18 and 17 year old, the 18 year old. He was the most hesitant when the vaccines first came out and they hadn't been FDA approved yet. But he was hesitant because in his words, he just didn't want to be a science experiment. Mm -hmm. Well, I was like, eh, it's not up to you to decide, man. You're not doing your research. You're just looking crap up, you know? Like, yeah. So, um, but, but what happened was when he said that, a lot of folks in our family and other friends, just, it was like dogpiling a rabbit. They yeah. did what a lot of people do. It was like a Twitter war, you know, it was, but in real life, like that's so irresponsible and you want to kill grandma and that's like making him feel stupid, harassing him and making him feel just bad, like a bad person yeah. for being hesitant. So well, he dug, dug in his heels, I'm guessing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That It had the opposite. And frankly, I was part of that. You know, yeah. I, I tried to shame him into what I thought was doing the right thing. And I still think it was doing the right thing. So what I realized, though, was that that I was doing more harm than good. And regardless of how you feel about the vaccines, engaging with him in that regard, it, we weren't going to shame him into getting the vaccine. And in the meantime, we were dehumanizing him. We were doing rhetorical and emotional violence to the kid. Yeah. You know, so I realized that. And, and I said, listen, man, I, I think I lost the privilege of being able to engage with you on this subject. So let's at least wait until we see what the FDA says. So a few months had passed by FDA. It was maybe three or four months. And I said, Hey man, can we talk about it again? And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm like, hey, okay. I understand. And perfectly 
understandable why you would be very resistant to having a conversation with me. It's my fault because I beat you up and I'm really sorry. Yeah. What if we entered into the, what if we had a conversation and I just wanted to understand where you were coming from, you know? And, and we, so we started talking. I said, mm-hmm. I keep my mouth shut. And so we had that conversation and I understood his position a lot better. And that's where I understood what, like his thought process and the emotional turmoil that we all put him through through i didn't think it was necessarily the most mature reaction to say well fuck all y'all i'm not gonna do it now you know like yeah but it was i understood it better and so fast forward a few months after that we were going to a family get together with three other families uh two two of the families were the attorneys that i was just talking about best friends from uh growing up and there were going to be 19 people there well 18 of us were vaccinated Jackie boy was the only one that wasn't vaccinated. So I talked to my buddies about it and I was afraid that they were going to say, well, sorry, dude, he can't come. But what they said was if he's, it was a long conversation, but what the bottom line was, if he's willing to get tested before he comes out, then that's great. He's, you know, he's, um, as long as he's not sick and he's going to infect us, who've taken such great care not to get sick, then all's well and good. I think, so I went to Jack and I, like if I hadn't had that second conversation after FDA approval came out in that way, mm-hmm. I, I kind of redeemed a little bit of that part of our relationship. I redeemed that conversation. So at least we had some dialogue going. Yeah. I truly believe that if I didn't have that follow-up conversation months later and, and just accounted for the fact that I went about the first conversation in the wrong way, I don't think he would have even been open to getting tested, huh. you know, yeah. just because of how averse he was to the whole to the whole thing. Everybody's against me and I feel differently. And I just, but I was like, Jack, man, I really want you to come. Everybody wants you to come. Yeah. Would you just be willing to get a test? And he was like, yeah, yeah. I think that's, he was, in fact, he was appreciative of the fact that everybody has a different opinion than he does, but they were respectful of, you know, where he was at, even if they disagreed and created a way for him to still participate. I thought that in fact, from a political standpoint, I thought that was like, a libertarian's dream in a way like yeah okay like we really disagree but is there a way for us to figure out how to be together literally so anyway all right well that concludes the first half of my conversation with Corey. Uh, i hope you have enjoyed it thus far uh, i'm going to keep my reflection relatively short because i want to save the majority of it for the end of the next episode that way i have our entire conversation to sort of reflect on. But I do have a few quick comments before wrapping this up, starting with um, the word that I was struggling to come up with for some reason to describe Trump was just insecure. I think that's pretty obvious for most people paying attention over the last six years. Um, I, I I mean, there, there have been studies that masculine insecurity is linked to people's approval of Trump. I mean, obviously, Trump himself is very insecure. Um, but I think it's more than just, you know, people's masculinity that they're kind of anxious about and, and, and insecurity just generally about also their intelligence. Um, I, I, no one wants to be called dumb, obviously. Uh, and of all the people that I, that have blocked me on social media, I think most of them have done so after I, in some, uh, impolite way called them dumb to their, well, on social media. Um, but also, just when I think about people and friends who are just the most ardent supporters of Trump, uh, especially the guys, it's hard for me not to kind of find or see a common thread of just general insecurity among them. I'm not saying this is like the 
you know, the single defining factor of Trump's base, but it's kind of hard to ignore. Um, anyways, I'll just kind of leave that at that. Uh, I, I loved Corey's comment about does Trump have a soul? Nope. And what immediately came to mind was uh, the, the scene at the end of Harry Potter where Lord Voldemort's skeletal like baby form is uh, under some bench in, in a train station and, and Dumbledore essentially saying, yeah, it's, it's too late to help him. Um, yeah, for any of my Harry Potter nerds out there, I, I wonder if you had a similar thought. But anyways, um, I also liked when Corey mentioned how he just kind of hates when people hijack the language of God, you know, for their own purposes, uh, citing the example of Trump's photo opportunity outside the White House, where they cleared Lafayette Square using tear gas and um, heavy police presence, calling this essentially idolatry. And this uh, reminded me of during Trump's presidency, when I think it was Joel Osteen or Lou Dobbs or I don't know, someone saying that they envisioned, they had a vision of Trump sitting at the side of God uh, in heaven. And and it just brings brings back just so many thoughts about like the problems with that I see with religion and um, more so just the prosperity gospel, you know, realm of religion. Uh, you know, these people who, who literally believe that you, the amount of wealth you have is a um, sign about how much God loves you or whatever. I know I'm oversimplifying it, but I, I bring this up only because I do think the left could do a better job at calling out these sort of false prophets. And not just the left, but people like Corey, who I think, like he said, make up the silent majority of uh, religious people, especially in America, could... Um, just I guess need help just taking back Christian values and uh, trying to establish themselves as also as you know a religious community that the the, the right has seemed to kind of co-opt for themselves. Um, I I'm I buy that they don't necessarily get the platform or airtime, especially when they're people you know crazies spouting off random bullshit that obviously gets a lot more attention. But moving on, uh, I also love. Uh, Corey's suspicion of just people who think that they have the answers to everything. Um, I, I like this specifically because I think curiosity is just healthy in general, especially when it comes to understanding politics. Uh, I have an entire episode called uh, Education is the Solution, where I talk about the importance of approaching complex issues like a scientist with humility. But I often feel like kind of that person uh, who, who, seems like they have the answers to everything, especially when talking politics, because, I mean, to be honest, I have studied politics and have paid attention longer than most people that I often disagree with. So it's fair to say I just have better understanding, albeit incomplete, about many of the issues that some of my opponents have only just recently started to even consider. And by recently, I mean within like the Trump era, the last like six years or so. That being said, I, I do constantly need to remind myself not to come across just like a know-it-all dogmatic prick when trying to explain to these folks, you know, that complex issues like immigration or corruption can't be solved with a simple three-word slogan like build a wall or drain the swamp. I, unfortunately, I think it's just a lot easier to live in that world, though, where, you know, there are easy fixes uh, to complex problems um, and you know, that's much more palatable to an uninformed voter than more nuanced and thoughtful and long-term solutions that actually make a difference. Um, 
that are also more difficult to kind of explain in detail. But I, I guess like if my goal is to convince folks, which I think ultimately it is, um, I I agree with Corey that you know I'm not going to convince everyone, let alone anyone, especially not in the immediate. And it's going to take uh, you know gradual progress and change over over the long term if if I'm going to be successful. And again, I'm not, you know, I have, I have no delusions that I'm going to, you know, make change a bunch of people's minds by any means. But um, my, my hope is kind of like what Corey said is, that, you know, when some someone sees someone like Tucker Carlson just berating liberals for something uh, and demonizing, you know, folks, he that person is able to at least think of me an example of, you know, a, a rational liberal who doesn't necessarily fit into that Tucker Antifa communist trope um, that he's constantly kind of spouting. Um, in my experience, you know, talking to folks and going to political rallies, uh, I, I found that we really do share a lot more in common um, with each other than what separates us, um, which is often hard to see when you're on social media. But you, Corey mentioned, you know, folks are often just on the opposite sides of a mirror and could likely find common cause if they just kind of peeled back the malice. And, and yeah, I totally agree. I, I think, you know, the political spectrum to me is honestly more like a horseshoe where, you know, the extremes are much more similar than perhaps like the middle and they don't necessarily realize that there's just like a, a small kind of separation between the two. And so I guess, you know, a goal of this podcast is to find a way to peel back the malice while also finding those commonalities that, that I think bring most of us together. Um, I don't know if I'm successful in, in that regard, but it's it's still, still a goal of mine. Um, so I'll just kind of keep it at that. Like I said, I'm going to have a, a little bit deeper of a uh, reflection after the second half of the conversation. That way I have the entirety of our chat to kind of think about. Um, so I encourage you to subscribe if you have not already done so. I'm going to post the second half of the conversation uh, early next week. Uh, I want to thank Corey again for joining me for this conversation and uh, thank all of you for listening. Uh, like I said at the top, if you're interested in sharing with you, sharing with me your thoughts or feedback, um, feel free to email me at pmwp.pod at gmail.com or just follow me on social media, uh, Twitter, Instagram. Um, yeah, sounds good. Talk to you again soon. Bye.